Good morning, everyone, and welcome to my show, the Dr. M's Women and Children of First podcast. Today is Spa Newsletter, Volume 11, Issues Number 36 and 38, where we're going to be discussing vision and breathing, as well as a little deeper dive into the effects of the pandemic on school. So I hope this uh, news that you are about to hear is going to be helpful. So let's get to it. So vision and breathing is volume 11, issue number 36 of the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter, as always, can be found at doxmo.com or salisburypediatrics.com health and wellness tab at the newsletter site. All the old ones are archived there, so you can get a good access point there for learning if you want to go back in time. So vision and breathing. Dr. Andrew Huberman, a Stanford neurobiologist, has been researching this topic for years and is finding some things that are very fascinating. What are the connections between breathing and vision? From a 2020 Scientific American article, no, Scientific American article, another one of my favorite journals, we have a quote. But Andrew Huberman, a neuroscientist at Stanford University who studies the visual system, sees matters a bit differently. Stress, he says, is not just about the content of what we are reading or the images we are seeing. It is about our eyes and breathing change in response to the world, as well as the cascades of events that follow. Both of these bodily processes also offer us easy and accessible releases for stress. Huberman's assertions are based on both established and emerging science. He has spent the past 20 years unraveling the inner workings of the visual system. In 2018, for example, his laboratory reported its discovery of brain pathways connected with fear and paralysis that respond specifically to visual threats. And a small but growing body of research makes the case that altering our breathing can alter our brain. In 2017, Mark Krasnow, of Stanford, Jack Feldman on the University of California at Los Angeles, and their colleagues identified a tight link between neurons responsible for controlling breathing and the region of the brain responsible for arousal and panic, end quote. Did you know that your eyes are actually extrusions of your brain out to receive visual external stimuli? During embryology, when the baby is being formed inside mom, the eyes actually grow directly from the brain into the position that we see them in at birth. In effect, eyes are your brain sitting outside the skull to rapidly assess the external environment, the external world, and make an immediate response to a perceived threat. When you are stressed, fascinating things happen visually. Your pupils will dilate. The eye's lens position changes. An inward rotation of your eyes occurs, leading to your field of vision narrowing, blurring the periphery, focusing everything to the front and close up. This process allows the stressed mammal to visually focus on the perceived threat. This process is intimately tied to the activation of the entire nervous system, whereby the hormones, cortisol, and the neurotransmitters, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and dopamine flood the system in preparation to run away from the threat. Cortisol activates the release of energy and shuts off inflammation and other non-necessary processes for this acute problem. Think about the evolutionary logic of this system. You are walking in the woods and you see a panther. What happens? Number one, 
Your eyes hyperfocused on the threat, sending electrical impulses throughout the brain. You see the threat. You're ready. Two, your brain signals the adrenal gland to release tons of norepinephrine and epinephrine stimulating blood flow via increasing blood pressure and heart stroke volume while shunting blood to your muscles and brain, improving mental clarity and arousal for the sole purpose of escape and survival. Three, your adrenal gland also releases cortisol, increasing sugar availability, mobilization of fat for energy, and decreasing inflammation and other unnecessary metabolic activities. Four, you have a brain-enhanced memory to the event. This last part is critical to why we remember acute trauma so well. The cortisol response makes sure that the brain remembers where you saw the panther and how to avoid the situation again. Five, immune enhancement for pathogen killing in the event that you are injured. So this is a very elegant system until we become mismatched between the types of stress, how frequently we receive them, and for how long. If you can imagine living with a metaphorical panther in your house daily, i.e. abusive relationship, then you will persistently be wide-eyed but narrowly focused on the perceived threat, that abuser. Your stress hormones will be firing all the time and that has a tremendous long-term downstream problem, downstream effect, including 1. Metabolic derangements of hyperglycemia, fat deposition, and insulin resistance leading to diabetes, coronary vascular disease, hypertension, obesity, cancer, and COVID death risk. So this makes complete sense. Again, these are all the counters to the necessary effects that occur during the fight or flight mode. So going on, number two, changes in satiety hormones cause excess eating desires that promote metabolic derangements that for a loop that is self that form a loop that is self-reinforcing. Chronic cortisol neuropeptide-wide drive food-seeking behavior. Three, inflammation through cortisol response element resistance leading to uncontrolled NF-kappa-B release, which promotes systemic shifts in inflammatory mediators that promote all disease types. Four, mood fatigue and dysregulation through persistence of excessive epinephrine, norepinephrine, and dopamine. The constant state of arousal will task the system into fatigue, anxiety, and ultimately depression. Five, sleep architecture is disrupted. Hyperarousal and neurotransmitter activity coupled to cortisol excess has dramatic effects on sleep patterns. Decreased deep sleep and restorative sleep occurs leading to a loop of fatigue and mood changes leading to further dysregulation of hormones in sleep and around and around we go. Six, immune polarity shifts away from T helper cell type 1 pathogen specific killing and towards Th2 or T regulator immune tolerance downregulation of the immune system. This is not good in the long run. Remember that these responses are evolutionarily baked in for our safety. Running from a panther takes energy, which is the exact reason that the above effects in the short run are so useful. Increased mobilization of fats and sugar, increased hyperalert state, and so on are life-saving traits for humans. It is only poor choices that we make that allow these fabulous survival systems to be counterproductive for us. Sit with this thought for a while. When you are worried about some unfixable problem of life, whatever it may be, come to terms with your reality wherever you find yourself. Do not fight against your fate so much as always aim to be the best version of yourself wherever you find yourself. Help those around you see the blessings where there are or see losses. 
Teach your children through word and example how to see the world and how to diffuse your obstacles, stresses, and frustrations. This is a fundamental need for humans. We must reduce the panther's presence in our lives. I've said this many times of our culture. We are all blessed despite the myriad problems that people espouse to have and claim victimhood from. It only takes a second to watch the real-life trauma of Afghanistan and the poor people there to realize our great fortune. Please focus on all of the positive aspects of your children, your life, and everything around you. Please stop perseverating on that which you cannot change and change that which you can to be the best human that you can. Smile at anyone and everyone that you see. Work tirelessly at your craft and build the self-esteem that will ground you during tough times. I will commit to you that I will continue to work tirelessly here and in the clinic for your children during these hard times and the future. Okay, so how do we really tackle this problem actively? Back to the eyeballs and brains. What is the reversal of stress? Well, We know that to be relaxation. If we stare out into the horizon, we are in effect virtually reversing the process of fight or flight. Thus, it is possible to alter your state of arousal by avoiding a narrow focus and breathing in a 478 pattern. When I was in Arizona learning from Dr. Weil, he had made a point of emphasizing how powerful the 478 breathing pattern was in inducing the parasympathetic tone of relaxation. This is the opposite of fight and flight. Thus, right off the bat, we can change our state of mind and stress by getting up every morning and staring out into the distance while practicing this relaxing breath. There's a link to how to do this relaxing breath on Dr. Weil's uh, webpage. The link is in the newsletter, but I'm going to demonstrate it for you since this is the audio version. The 478 essentially runs like this. You breathe in through your nose for a count of four, breathe out for a count of eight while you hold your breath for a count of seven in between. The breathing in part comes in through your nose. The breathing out part comes out through your mouth in a pursed lip pattern. But I'm going to demonstrate here. All right, here we go. Okay, that was two cycles. So that's a four, seven, and eight in one cycle and then repeated again in a second cycle. Doing that four or five times in the morning, four or five times in the afternoon, and four or five times the evening while staring at the horizon will be very grounding and stress-reducing. I do do this a lot. And interesting enough, it had a great effect on me reducing an arrhythmia that I had back in my late 30s called supraventricular tachycardia. Instead of taking medicine, I learned how to do this breathing technique over and over again, and it induced a parasympathetic state that reduced my need for any kind of intervention and slowed my heart rate back down when it goes up. So it's very powerful and something I would highly encourage people to do. Okay, the to-do. Number one, change your state of mind by practicing positive mindset thinking and being grateful daily for what you have. 
Number two, make a habit of staring out into the distance multiple times a day while meditating on the horizon, praying for inner peace, or saying a positive mantra to yourself. Number three, practice the above done 478 relaxing breath technique. It is very powerful. Number four, work the other fundamentals of lifestyle medicine, including exercise, healthy breathing, and adequate sleep and toxin avoidance. Number five, seek out a counselor or life coach to help you find yourself when you find yourself stuck in a negative mindset rut or a mood disorder place. So let us see the distance that we were meant to see. Citations for these articles are in the newsletter. So Derek Sivers, an excellent author and somebody that I correspond with, has written a really interesting uh, missive. He called it, How Many Pets Do You Have? Uh, it was titled that and was written August 13th of this year. And he says, I used to have too many pets. Each time I adopted one, I was fully in love. I was enamored with the potential. Each new pet was meant to be my constant companion. So I would take it home and love it. But eventually I'd discover a new pet and the process would repeat. My house was overflowing. But I didn't feel that way at the time. In each moment, I was giving just one pet my full attention. My life was full of so many loves. Ah, but that's seeing it from my point of view. What about theirs? Each pet only got a little of my time each week. The rest of the time they were neglected, waiting for my attention. I sadly realized this was unfair. The situation was hurting them. No pet was thriving. No pet was getting the attention it deserved. The situation was also hurting me. Anyone who wanted to come into my life had to compete for my attention or love of all my pets. I was scattered and unavailable. So I started releasing them back into the wild, one at a time, reluctantly. I'd set one free or I'd find it a new home with someone who was going to really give it 100% of their love. I mourned the loss of possibility with each one as I said goodbye. My pet project to start a business. My plan to travel everywhere. My dream to learn Chinese. My goal to plant a forest. My wish to build a house. Although each goodbye was sad, it opened up more space. I enjoyed the freedom and feeling unconflicted. Before I'd get, excuse me, before I'd glance at each pet and feel love but guilt for not giving it more time. Now I picture what could have been and just enjoy the daydream. I let my last pet go, came home, and cleaned the house. There's so much room for focus now. Surprising end to the story, one, kept, one pet kept coming back, no matter how many times I set her free. She refused to stay away. So now it's just me and her, and I'm giving her all of my time. Derek. So, I've been reading and corresponding with Derek for a few years now, and this missive came in, you know, like I said, a few days ago, and I really love the simplicity of the imagery and the concepts that he is trying to teach here. We all, especially teenagers, need to release the animals in our world that are not serving our mission and happiness. This aligns with his book, Hell Yeah or No, which is a personal favorite of mine. If you want to read more of his excellent philosophy, go to Sivers.org. Um, there's a link on the newsletter, of course. Without philosophical thought in my mind, we tend to get siloed into poor quality, selfish beliefs. So enjoy the philosophy of Derek Sivers. It is, he is quite good. All right, section three of this newsletter. 10 things not to do in your kitchen. 
Number one, most importantly, do not cook or reheat in plastic. This includes using plastic wrap during microwaving, boiling in plastic bags, or styrofoam. If you use a microwave, place a glass of water in the microwave to keep your food hydrated. The plastic residue can have endocrine disruptors in it, and this is not good. Number two, do not use metal utensils and questionably safe non-stick cookware, i.e. Teflon. Or better yet, do not use non-stick cookware coated at all. Ceramic appears to be a much better type of cookware to use in the kitchen. Number three, if you use them, do not ever heat on high with non-stick pans. The coating will off-gas and that is toxic. Number four, do not use lots of omega-6 oils like soy, vegetable, corn. They're unhealthy and have pro-inflammatory status. Five, separate your cutting boards. Use one for meats and fish while the other is for everything else like vegetables. This can help prevent food poisoning. Number six, avoid burning your proteins, especially meats. This releases toxic byproducts, anthracyclines and the like. Seven, deep frying, never healthy. Lots of oxidized dangerous fats that promote inflammation. Just avoid it. Eight, do not salt your food before tasting it. Lots of food is plenty tasty already. Don't need the salt. Number nine, do not boil your non-starchy vegetables. You lose much of the nutrients to the water. Steam or bake instead. And don't steam too long because you lose can lose it that way as well. Ten, do not touch your eyes or face after cutting peppers or onions. That's an obvious one, but some people don't think about it. Number eleven, if you have toddlers in the house, never cook on the stove's front burners. This will help to avoid a tragic burn when a child grabs a pot handle. We've seen a couple cases over the last two decades, and it's really sad. So that's a simple one. Okay, the last, there's an immune-boosting cold and flu prophylactic uh, recipe at the end of this newsletter. The ingredients are one and one-half cups of pumpkin seeds roasted and salted, three tablespoons of powdered astragalus root, and three tablespoons of olive oil. So this can be found on the newsletter link at doctor, uh, excuse me, at salisburypediatrics.com or can be found directly at nicolemagrita.com, her website. All right, folks, that's the end of number 36. We'll move on to number 38. Okay, volume 11, issue or letter number 38 of the Salisbury Pediatrics Newsletter. So there's a picture of hiking, which you can't see, but there's a picture of a hiking backpack hanging on a tree. And for me, that symbolizes my favorite way to immerse myself in nature and contemplate all kinds of ideas for change and growth. As fall rounds into shape right now, we're leaving uh, August, heading into September, October, get out in the beautiful countryside wherever you find yourself. Look far into the distance for relaxation, smell the air and enjoy the freshness, and think about a better version of yourself or how to improve every day. Okay, this letter is going to start with the effects of COVID on kids and specifically type 2 diabetes. The pandemic has taken an amazing toll on human health. According to two new studies that are not yet in print, the pandemic caused a doubling in diabetes in children. This is not a trivial matter, as insulin resistance, diabetes, obesity, and metabolic syndrome in general are the diagnostic disease associated with increased risks for cancer, coronary artery disease, and early death from issues like COVID. The antecedent triggers have been well studied and discussed in this newsletter in the past. Sedentary behavior coupled to a high-fat, high-refined carbohydrate diet are the main drivers of disease in the pandemic forced many of child's hand. They were less likely to exercise and move during the poor quality Zoom events. 
Physical education classes were non-existent. Some kids' environments are dangerous so they don't go outside much. Food quality plummeted from a poor school-based place to a worse home-based place. If you missed it and you want to get a greater appreciation for insulin resistance, the pathophysiology, how it happens, and all the above, the newsletter from June 27th is the written version, and there's also the uh, audio cast version on iPodcasts. Diabetes has a very long latency period from which a child is metabolically destroying his or her system for years. Waiting for the markers of diabetes to be noted is to wait way too long. Type 2 diabetes is a completely preventable disease. A disease of poor parental stewardship, poor governmental policy, and poor corporate food promotion that prioritizes convenience, profit, and taste over health at every turn. As I've said before, the United States federal government hauled in $3.5 trillion in taxes in 2019, making the problem of access to funds, money to provide good quality food, a non-existent problem. Let us look at some numbers. In 2019, the United States government spent $39.2 billion on foreign aid and $686.1 billion on defense. According to the federal government, 50.8 million children attended primary K-12 through school. 29.7 million children received government-sponsored food costing $13.7 billion. If every child received two meals a day for 180 days of school, that equates to 10 billion meals. That is roughly a governmental allowance of less than $1.50 per child per meal. What can you truly buy with this dollar amount per meal? Simple answer, government-sponsored junk quality food. Give me the $39.2 billion of foreign aid earmarked for people that have nothing to do with our children, our country, and our lives, and we are dining in style. Is a foreign country's problems more important than our own children's health and future? Or is the defense budget that much more important than the health and welfare of the next generation? How am I even asking this question in 2021? I don't care where the money comes from, where you take it from, as long as we feed our children healthy, nourishing food that grows their minds, bodies, and spirit. For me, this issue is simple. Stop feeding our children garbage food in schools now that they have returned. The United States provides 66% of the food that the average K-8 grader consumes in a school day. Thus, we are culpable for 10 of 21 meals in a week, almost half their caloric intake. We must change the nourishment that enters the mouth of the school child before these issues destroy any more lives through disease. Increase physical education for every child regardless of what condition they are in. We have to ask the children to push themselves in a graded, safe fashion back to a place of health. We must stop accepting that being poorly conditioned is okay. It is not normal to be out of shape, and it is not healthy. There is no debate here. This matter is settled scientifically. It is only an issue because of poor federal and local stewardship coupled to political and media pressure to normalize being unhealthy. We, again, are not talking about body size or appearance of any kind at all. We are only talking about the inputs that ruin health versus the, that ruin health versus the outputs that promote it. We have a great opportunity here to see and be scared by the statistics of our children's health. They are scary. These numbers are a few years old as the numbers are not, uh, newer numbers are not available. My comments are in italics, but here are my recommendations. 
So, diabetes in youth. About 210,000 Americans under 20 years of age are estimated to have been diagnosed with diabetes, approximately 0.25% of the population, which means in my mind that much larger number are insulin resistant and on their way to diabetes and more metabolic disease. In 2014 to 2015, the annual incidence of diabetes uh, diagnosed in youth was estimated at 18,200 with type 1 diabetes and 50 to 800 in type 2 diabetes. This number is climbing now. Diabetes by race and ethnicity notes that 7.5% are non-Hispanic whites, 9.2% are Asian Asian Americans, 12.5% are Hispanics, 11.7% are non-Hispanic blacks, and 14.7% are American Indians or Alaskan Natives. According to the ADA, the American Diabetes Association, here are the recommendations for recognizing the type 2 diabetes in children. My comments are in italics as I do not agree with the current plan of care. Recommendations. Number one, risk-based screening for prediabetes and or type 2 diabetes should be considered in children and adolescents after the onset of puberty or greater than 10 years of age, whichever occurs earlier, or who are overweight with a BMI greater than 85 percentile or obese BMI greater than 95 percentile and who are one or more additional risk factors for diabetes. Now, in my mind, this is way too late to start to screen and or educate, and using BMI as a guide is terrible because the BMI does not effectively take into account what their diet is. A BMI child who is normal, 50%, let's say, could be eating complete garbage and still be completely metabolically unhealthy and on his way to insulin resistance. This has been shown. You don't need to be overweight to be insulin resistant. So this data doesn't make any, these recommendations don't make much sense to me. Two, if a tests are normal, repeating a test at a three-year interval or more frequently if the BMI is increasing. Well, in my mind, again, we should be testing these kids yearly if they're on an unhealthy diet regardless of weight, although the testing part can be pretty difficult. So the simple answer is really just every single chance you meet these people talk about diet, health, exercise, every single time. And frankly, in clinic, I do. Number three, Fasting plasma glucose, two-hour plasma glucose during a 75-gram oral glucose tolerance test, and an A1C can be used to test for prediabetes or diabetes in children and adolescents. That's the recommendation, okay? In my mind, serum insulin levels are the best way to catch early insulin resistance, or better yet, continuous glucose monitor would be the best way to do this. By the time the hemoglobin A1C is abnormal, the child has been insulin resistant for a long time. We see this in the world of of pregnancy where they're testing these oral glucose tolerance tests and not insulin and finding that uh, a mother will fail the one hour but pass the two hour and three hours, so they consider that okay. Well, if you're failing any of it, that means you're eating the wrong diet. And of course, we see these these children end up being born larger and with hypoglycemia at birth because of the excess insulin that they've been bathed in during the pregnancy. Four, children and adolescents with obesity and overweight situations in whom the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes is being considered should have a panel of pancreatic autoantibodies tested to exclude the possibility of autoimmune type 1 diabetes. I would submit that any size body person where type 2 diabetes is being considered should have these antibody tests performed. This part I do agree with. The COVID pandemic is leaving behind a plethora of problems and we now must start to reverse this reversible trend in disease. One, First and foremost, we must stop subsidies for poor quality, school, food, however that can be done. Two, 
we must keep working with our parents and the children to pack a healthier lunch from home if the powers that be prefer disease to health through their policies. Three, we need to spend time with parents discussing what healthy food looks like. Four, we need to get kids moving again in school and after school to burn their calories, reduce insulin resistance, and increase fitness. Five, we need to monitor screen time to assure another layer of health impediment reduction. All right, that's my two cents. But we know we clearly have a big problem. If we're doubling diabetes now because of COVID, that's going to last for a long, long time if we don't fix this problem. And those kids are all going to go on to be adults with disease and adults with more disease and get younger um, problems and die earlier. All of it's bad. Dynamic versus stable is what I'm calling this section. The human body is an extremely dynamic machine, processing and changing cellular metabolic and metabolism real time, millions of times a day based on need. We have incredible systems of redundancy in place to handle acute shifts in our perceived and real environment. This was evolutionary necessary as food sources, temperature variations, and general living conditions historically are in constant flux change. Today, we live in a world where we attempt to keep everything static for comfort. For example, 70 degrees Fahrenheit as an indoor temperature was not possible until the recent past. Eating meat and the same fruit daily was not possible. Staying up all night with strong lights was not normal. All of these attempts to normalize a new way of living are counter to our evolutionary biases and genetic makeup. Let us look at breastfeeding and breast milk. We have normalized formula as a perfect food source for newborns, despite the obvious fact that it is not so. Everywhere I turn, mothers are accepting formula over breastfeeding and thinking this is the norm. However, breast milk has the perfect fat, protein, carbohydrate makeup that is specifically geared for a human newborn. Formula is based on a cow-baby milk needs, and thus it is not ideal for a human, just as an adult cow eats grass all day long where a human does not. Human milk changes over time to meet the nutritional immunologic needs of the child throughout the first years of life. The dynamic nature of human milk is critical to the success of our species as we evolve to be consuming this natural product as opposed to a baby calf's milk source. Think about Dr. Huberman's work from a few weeks ago that was discussed in this audio cast. Being outside and looking at the horizon is very beneficial to visual activation and stress reduction. Historically, we completed a long distance gaze multiple times a day. Now we live in a close focus computer centric world that is stressing us out. We, as discussed in previous newsletters, are specifically geared to live in a constant environmental shift, not you thermic or you anything. Change is good, and we should work towards this reality. All right, folks, that's it for this week. So that was audio cast for the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter. This is volume 11, issues number 36 and 38, which corresponded with uh, weeks August 23rd and September 6th. 2021. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter slash audio cast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter or audio cast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Okay. 
Hug those kids. Have a great day.